The Coast Guard hit some snags with the transition to a new financial system earlier this year. Now, members of Congress are calling on Homeland Security officials to provide some answers about those challenges. We get the latest from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, tell us what happened in the first place. What is going wrong with this new system? Well, the Coast Guard transitioned to the new system officially in January. It's called the Financial Management System Modernization Solution, or FSMS. And it's a DHS-wide system. It's essentially commercial off-the-shelf Oracle software. Two other components at DHS had already adopted this new system, the Transportation Security Administration and the Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Office. But the Coast Guard transition was expected to be more complex given the size of the service and all the other systems and databases it had to plug into. And after that official January transition, the Coast Guard ran into some technical issues that led to delays in payments for contractor invoices, permanent change of station claims, temporary duty claims, and and a lot of other expenses that if you either are a person in the Coast Guard or a contractor for the Coast Guard, you you probably experienced something along these lines. And the invoice backlog actually ran up to 29,000 invoices that were delayed at one point. So the Coast Guard spent the spring really chipping away at this big delayed backlog. All right. So if you don't pay contractors, that's the fastest way to get the attention of Congress. And what are members saying about it and who's saying it? Well, the Senate Appropriation Committee's fiscal 2023 spending bill was just released last week. And in it, lawmakers actually call out this issue. It directs the Coast Guard and two DHS offices, the chief financial officer and the chief information officer, to brief the committee on the delays and cost overruns associated with the Coast Guard's move to this new system. And it also calls on both the DHS CIO and CFO offices to brief the committee on lessons learned from prior transitions to these new financial systems and and measures that are being taken to ensure further transitions are successful and cost-effective because other DHS components are also in the midst of similar updates here. So the Coast Guard and DHS have some time here because these briefings aren't required until the 2023 spending bill becomes law. That likely won't happen until later this fall at the earliest. All right. So they're looking for some answers, but not threatening to zero out or cancel the project at this point. Right. In that sense, the Coast Guard is in better shape than Veterans Affairs, which is getting threats from the Hill to cancel its EHR project. That's a whole different story. And what is the Coast Guard saying? What are they doing to update the project? Yeah, Coast Guard's credit. They've been pretty forward about releasing updates on this since they ran into issues As I mentioned, the backlog reached a height of about 29,000 invoices. That's now down to 2,800 invoices, uh, according to an update I got from a Coast Guard uh, spokeswoman earlier this week. And the service is now on track to pay all invoices that are over 30 days old by the end of fiscal 2022. So that's coming up here on September 30th. The Coast Guard has also fully cleared out the backlog of permanent change of station claims and temporary duty claims now processing those claims in real time. So that's good news for Coasties who are, you know, being moved around or as hurricane season picks up and things like that. In March, the Coast Guard established an incident management team to address the technical issues that have led to these delays. That team is led by Rear Admiral John Hickey, and it's been working with contractors, uh, specifically IBM, which is kind of providing the overarching contract uh, solution. And then Oracle, whose software is, is in question here, to 
work through these technical issues. You mentioned a moment ago that this is part of a Homeland Security-wide, a department-wide effort to modernize financial systems. Are they having the same issues at other components? Is DHS using the same solution department-wide? Well, it's interesting. It's it's somewhat of a department-wide effort that's also a little bit federated. So, you know, Coast Guard, TSA, and the Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Office have all moved to this specific system called FSMS. And now there are a few other components who are in line for a similar upgrade, but in in a different vein. And and lawmakers in this Homeland Security spending bill are actually calling on on DHS to brief them on steps they're taking to make sure that goes off without a hitch. So in fiscal 2023, this upcoming year, FEMA, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and two DHS headquarters components are moving to another similar Oracle system. Uh, They've requested about $114 million in fiscal 2023 to do that. And so lawmakers will be closely watching how DHS works through those upgrades to financial management software. It's a little surprising given the literally 50-year history or 40-year history that the government has with Oracle. I think it's closer to 50 years and the financial programs and and databases that Oracle has been providing, yet each new generation, I guess, has challenges. What else are you looking for in the 2023 Homeland Security Bill? Well, another big issue that we're primarily tracking is CISA's ever-increasing budget, and CISA is once again in line for another budget increase here. The Senate Appropriation Committee's bill includes about $2.9 billion for CISA. That's $330 million more than la- uh, this current budget, 2022 budget. That increase is roughly in line with the House Appropriation Committee's bill. So if lawmakers can at some point agree to pass a fiscal 2023 budget, it's almost certain that CISA will receive an increase here. Those increases are targeted in a few areas. Cyber threat hunting, so CISA can do that sort of threat hunting across federal civilian agency networks. And then CISA's cybersecurity education program also gets a bump in the Senate's version of the bill. Yeah, it's a good time for CISA to ask for more money because I imagine the same activities that have made the Chinese feel like they need to turn Taiwan into a bee's nest of flight activity. Maybe they are also launching all sorts of cyber attacks around the world. Haven't heard reports of that yet, but it's likely. And that combined with, of course, Russia's ongoing uh, invasion of Ukraine and, you know, the increased cyber threats that you kind of see emanating from from that conflict. So, yeah, certainly a good time for it. It always seems to be a good time for CISA to be asking for an increase because that's one of the major bipartisan issues across Congress really is gives us some more money. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration, and over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to 
as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.